a Podcast One production. Over the course of six weeks in the middle of 2019, pretty much everything in the world of cryptocurrency changed. A new story is unfolding. It's a different story from last year. The technology remains mostly the same, but the world, the world has moved along. Mark Pesci, and welcome to episode six of series two of Cryptonomics, a show dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, are transforming our entire world. Along the way, we've learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We've spoken to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We've learned how things work, why they work, and when they don't. In Series 1, we covered enough of the basics to help you make your own investment decisions. You have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency. Ask whether it's real, whether it's wise, whether it's a good investment. You learn the questions you'd need to ask and the sorts of answers you'd want to receive. Cryptocurrencies, though, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain is just over 11 years old, but it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including banking. And it's being used as the foundations for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that is touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. And that's why we call this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall and rise of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that's rolling over banks, retailers, even currencies. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business. It's already forcing institutions as fundamental as central banks to make way for it. Now, in a moment, we'll be joined again by our wise and well-read panelists discussing the emerging balance of power with Facebook on one side, the People's Republic of China on the other, a situation no one foresaw, and a geopolitical rearrangement that we can't seem to avoid. It's a great pleasure to once again welcome Mark Jeffrey to Cryptonomics. Mark is the patron saint of this podcast because our episode on cryptocurrencies on the next billion seconds was at the time the most downloaded episode of that series. That series inspired this series. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks for having me, Mark. Joining Mark Jeffrey is our other partner at this roundtable. Robert Tursick, the award-winning author of Vaporized, a book that explains the why and how of all that is solid in the world melting into software, and that includes money. Welcome back, Robert. Hi, Mark. All right. Part one, Zuck against the world. Now, when we last had a conversation, it seemed as though Libra was going from strength to strength. There were partners including PayPal and Visa and MasterCard that were all lining up to support Facebook's new currency. There were 28 major partners. Now, by the time that those partners sat down, this was in October, to put their signatures onto the agreement that created the Libra Association, that number had dropped from 28 to 20, and specifically PayPal, Visa, and MasterCard had all dropped out, plus five others. They all cited various concerns. 
So my first question to you is, what do we read into this? Well, I think the people who dropped out were the incumbents, who were only there in the first place because they feared that they would be left out if somehow this Libra thing took off like a bat out of hell, and they weren't on board the train. So uh, so it's not really that surprising that they dropped out. They didn't want to be there in the first place. And now that Libra's under so much congressional scrutiny, they sensed risk for themselves by sticking around. There was also some talk that um, some senators had sent some letters to these companies saying to the effect that if you remain part of this Libra consortium, we're going to start investigating you, not just about Libra, but about all your transactions. You are now under more intense scrutiny. So basically you're painting a target on your back. Yeah, pretty much. This is an interesting thing because the, the corporations were all kind of international. I mean, Visa and MasterCard are international, PayPal's international, even though it's headquartered in America. And so do we start to see the situation where the U.S. is starting to dictate all of that policy around this because it's the senators who are sending these letters? This is uh, reminds me of what we've seen happen again and again and again when big organizations and old companies are threatened by digital disruption. Instead of embracing the future or putting you know, their best minds to work with reasonable resources on how can we manage this process, how can we be at the forefront of it, um, what we're seeing Congress do is circle up the wagons and protect the old guard, basically throwing the future under the bus in order to protect the past. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. It's, uh, you've seen that again and again and again as digital, digital media has rolled into one market after another. Right now it's happening in the healthcare industry, for instance, you know, where they're kind of sleepwalking towards oblivion as tech companies start to roll in with digital health initiatives. Um, and so the, the tendency is always to circle up the wagons and defend the old model uh, and try to do whatever you can to stop the new from gaining, gaining any traction. It doesn't seem to work. So this is a weird approach to me. I can see why it's happening, but there's so many examples. Is it almost reflexive then? This is just what you do. Sure. That's true. Because it takes a heroic leap of imagination to envision a world where every single rule that you live by, including economic rules, is overthrown and an entirely new set of rules comes into place. That takes a lot of imagination. Typically, the only people that are successful at this are the so-called disruptors, uh, the companies that have nothing to lose. That's why they can think that boldly. Now, in this case, Facebook's really interesting because they play the role of, you know, they play so many roles. Um, but in this case, they're, they're being portrayed as the villain. And it's funny because I never really tend to think of Mark Zuckerberg as a hero uh, but in this case, he's the champion for the future, and that's why he's wrapped himself in the U.S. flag. Yeah, I don't think that these—I don't think the U.S. is going to control ultimately the future of where these things go. Um, for the moment, they will definitely control the future of Libra. Um, however, um, as we've mentioned previously on this show, the United States is uh, increasingly fenced off by cryptocurrency exchanges in only the U.S., um, as though we're the kooky country, as though we are uh, North Korea of crypto, right? And so if, if we continue down this path, it's not going to be good for the United States. Look, these are not the only troubles that Libra has had. Everyone, so the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, many other central banks, China, India, all of these folks have come out saying Libra is a bad idea. Almost all of them, when they cite why, will cite money laundering and terrorist financing is the reasons why. Though we know, because I was in the room when it happened, that the FATF worked out a whole set of, of 
recommendations, which will become regulations, that these problems are effectively solved now. That, in fact, cryptocurrencies will have to be transferred the same way money in banks is. So, wait, well, Mark, what is the concern here? Well, the concern is not money laundering. Just about a month ago, a major worldwide child porn ring was brought down specifically mm. because the transactions were conducted using Bitcoin, mm. which left a trail on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Fiat cash leaves no trail. So, um, so it, it's not about money laundering. It is about retaining the dominance of the dollar and control. That's where their concerns are. So they're using that basically as the canard. That's yeah, the that's the scare here. tactic. So, you know, don't leave this safe little compound, you silly people. That's kind of where they're coming from on it. So, so Rob, you said something in our, our last conversation that was just, I thought, so pressing. And I've, I've really been reflecting on it. You said that Libra is going to be given the slow walk into oblivion. So is, is what we're seeing how that works? Is it just this continual resistance and, and just always finding a reason why Libra is not measuring up? Yeah, in, in a way, you know, uh, Facebook set this trap for themselves because Zuck has said several times uh, that he's not going to proceed unless Libra is, is um, gets a green light from every regulatory body. And of course, one of the Congress people who was wire brushing him on Capitol Hill recently asked him which which regulatory bodies in specific, and he was unprepared to give them a list of the bodies he was expecting to get approval from. Um, I thought that Zuck was horribly unprepared for that testimony in front of Congress, and, um, and rightfully, I mean, he ended up getting drubbed by several c- Congress people. That process isn't just a way to isolate Zuck. It is, uh, for sure, a way to put pressure on Facebook. It's also a warning to all those other members that are still part of the... Of this those, is how you will alliance. be treated. Exactly. If you, if you like what's happening to Zuckerberg here, join him for our next hearing. Uh, for your public so, flogging. <laughs> so, you, so you can imagine why a lot of companies dropped out. So your question was about the slow walk. And yes, I think that's exactly what's going on. So if you wanted to stop this thing, if you wanted to stifle Libra in the crib, the way to do it is to pick apart the alliance. Uh, the way to do it is to drive it offshore, like Mark Jeffrey just said, uh, to make people who participate in this thing feel like they're fugitive, not welcome in the United States, subject to extra scrutiny, subject to some sort of um, congressional inquiries. We've seen again and again and again these congressional inquiries don't actually solve anything. They don't really reveal much that you already you know, don't know that isn't already in the paper. They're really a chance for Congress people to grandstand. And there was a lot of that happening. Oh, my right? God, so much It of just that. went on and on and on. Well, so, okay, so this is the thing. We saw Zuckerberg ponying up to the Congress ostensibly the reason was to discuss Libra, that these hearings were about Libra. But that is not what Congress wanted to spend most of its time talking about. They wanted to talk about bashing Facebook basically around political manipulation at scale and political advertising. And so Zuckerberg tries to press his case for Libra. Very little of that comes through. So what are we to make of this public flogging of Zuckerberg? I mean, is that... Is it simply too radioactive for Facebook to ever do this because of the tarring they got because of all the political So that's stuff. the goal of the banks, right? The goal of the banks is to make Zucker- isolate Zuckerberg, flog him in public, humiliate him, drive away his support, and make the project radioactive. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're being that successful right now. Uh, you know, they're somewhat successful in that, in that process. Uh, Congress will do the bankers' bidding. So that part is... That's what we saw. That's the spectacle that we saw. Yeah. Um, now, the other... 
dynamic here is that Zuckerberg is remarkably tone deaf. We've seen many, many companies <laughs> in Silicon Valley be tone deaf before. <laughs> but he sets a new standard. Yeah, exactly. And you know, even people are commenting that he must be autistic or something on the spectrum. I don't know if that's true. That's speculation. But it is awfully clear that the guy was just not ready. It wasn't hard to expect that Alexandra Cortez was going to come at him uh, with complaints, right, about political advertising. He should have been prepared with talking points for that. At a minimum, he should fire his political handlers and his lobbyists for, for letting him walk into those traps. Uh, that was political grandstanding in advance of a, of a presidential campaign. Now, in the, in the, in the uh, Democratic primary uh, debates, we've seen one candidate after another declare war on billionaires, declare war on big companies, declare war on tech giants, and in particular, demand the breakup of Facebook. So it's basically now Democrats versus Facebook. And so is it any surprise then that Zuck is starting to suck up to Republicans? You know, everyone's wondering, why is he having dinner with all these Republicans? Gee, why is he tolerating Trump's uh, fake news and fake advertising and so forth? Well, where else is he supposed to turn? And so behind the scenes, no doubt, there's a huge shakedown going on where politicians of both parties are saying, that's a mighty fine business you've got there in your social network. Shame it would sure be a shame if someone broke it yeah. up. We could really benefit, by the way, with your support if you didn't mind underwriting our campaign. It cost a lot of money to run for president. So no doubt that's a dynamic that's happening in the background. And you saw both parties piling on. So there's a lot of pressure on Zuck just for that reason alone, because it's a presidential season. And the letters that are being sent to the Libra um, consortium members, those were pretty thuggish sounding letters as well. You know, it'd be a shame if something happened to your Visa card. You know what I'm saying, Visa, right? It was very much that kind of tone. And look at these companies. I mean, back in the day when there was a moment in time where WikiLeaks actually looked like it might be um, a force of good mm. before they became, I think, pretty obviously a foil for uh, disinformation. Um, that's my own editorial opinion. But then again, that's what this is all about. Um, but at one point, uh, the first company to bail out on WikiLeaks was PayPal. The first company right. to bail out of Libra was so PayPal. So they couldn't make a donation. Followed by MasterCard and yeah. Visa. So these are companies that so fear regulation that they're going to be the first ones to jump off. Right? They really know what side of the bread their, their bread is buttered on, I guess. Uh, now, the funny part about all this is the person who's been the most ominous in all this is Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Director, mm -hmm. Treasury Secretary. Um, and he's the one who's saying, well, they're not ready yet, and they're not ready to pass scrutiny, and if they try to launch this, if Facebook launches this or Libra Association launches this without our approval, there'll be measures. We'll take action. Now, what's ironic to me about that is this is the same Steve Mnuchin who, um, who bought... IndyMac out of bankruptcy when it was taken over by the FDIC back in 2009, uh, renamed it One West and became the foreclosure king, the, the alleged foreclosure king who foreclosed on 30,000 homes uh, using robo-signing. These are allegations that have been widely publicized. Uh, here's a guy, in other words, who flouted regulation in his, own, in his private sector career. Uh, but now that he's in charge of the regulatory apparatus, he's using it to browbeat people and push them around, uh, support his political interests. All right. Now, the thing that did happen during this hearing is that Zuckerberg made a patriotic pitch for Libra. So this is from MIT's chain letter. Let me quote uh, what they wrote about it. Zuckerberg, in his opening testimony, said that the opposite was true, that Libra, and opposite in terms of undermining U.S. sovereignty and undermining U.S. power, 
Libra, as currently envisioned, will be backed by a reserve composed of several sovereign currencies, but since the reserve will mostly be dollars, Zuckerberg said, regulators should see it as an opportunity to, quote, extend America's financial leadership as well as the democratic values of the U.S. and oversight around the world. If America doesn't innovate, Zuckerberg said, our financial leadership isn't guaranteed. So... Is Zuck really a patriot? Is this the choice before us? Back Libra because you believe in a strong America and a strong dollar going forward? Or I think it's an incredibly true point. Never mind what you think of Zuck. I mean, Zuck's got his own agenda. There's no doubt about that. Zuck has behaved badly. There's no doubt about that either. However, our guy has come to the table, Zuck being our guy, um, along with 28 partners in a consortium. Um, he's not trying to go it alone. He's, he is trying to do it in a very crypto consortium kind of way mm-hmm. um, and said, I want to make this thing. He could have just gone ahead and made it and then came back and said, well, too late. you can't stop me now. He didn't. He came to the table with the plan, said, this is what I want to do. I want you to approve it. I have 27 partners. Um, and Congress proceeded to mostly make sound bites of themselves for their Twitter feeds and videos of themselves beating up Zuck to gather, you know, votes, really. It's really amazing. So, the only person, the only organization that could make Zuckerberg look good under the circumstances is the U.S. Congress. Right. So United States of America has all of the advantages in this war, this coming cryptocurrency war that has already begun. And we are in the first innings of it and we are fumbling it by trying to knife our star player. He's got his problems. So, you know, keep an eye on him, you know, put him on a leash. But you definitely want to play this guy or somebody. Some move has to be made here by the United States, and so far we haven't made one. So does that then mean, because if we take you, and I don't think that's a bad idea at all, that in fact Mnuchin should actually be maybe under the table working closely with Facebook, with Zuckerberg, in order to go, okay, well, if this is going to happen, you will work closely with us to make sure that it happens in exactly the right way so that it does, in fact, become... A totally projection true. of American power because that's actually what we want here. There's a deal to be made. If we just had somebody in the world who knew about the art of the deal, we could <laughs> cut that for us. Just imagine the possibilities. Yeah, look, if you get past the political theater and the political season we happen to be in right now, um, then I think there's room for this to work very well for the United States. If we do nothing... To the point I was making earlier, and also Mark Jeffrey was making earlier, if the United States chooses to do nothing and fight the future, all that means is they won't be the author of the future, and somebody else will. To that point, Zuckerberg's absolutely right. So choosing inaction or resistance uh, is not a guarantee of anything except that you won't be the author of the future. So resistance is futile? Yeah, okay, fine. I mean, this is, sure. It's stupid. Sure. Um, but it's really self-defeating, and, and, uh, and a guarantee that you won't be able to, to be at the forefront. Look, uh, we live in a petroleum economy, for better or for worse, and um, the currency that we use is the petrodollar. Right. Because the Saudis have to be paid in U.S. dollars. Yeah. And lots of countries, lots of oil-producing countries, aren't that huge of a fan of the petrodollar, I'm thinking of this, of Russia for one, but also Iran. Venezuela. Exactly. So there's plenty of plenty of very wealthy countries that are pumping oil out of the ground that wouldn't mind changing that petrodollar. The United States gets an incredible benefit from being the global reserve currency. Uh, the, you know, that our dollars use as a global reserve currency. That's a gigantic windfall for Americans. Most of us are oblivious to. It's no secret that back in 2008. 
the Russians and the Chinese had a conversation about maybe it's time to dethrone the United States and push the dollar off the stage. If we choose to do nothing, and if this digital economy continues to grow at twice the rate of the physical economy, which is the point I made in the book Vaporized, um, at some point the digital economy will be larger than the physical economy. And if it's not, not dollar denominated, where will U.S. leadership be? And what kind of influence will the United States have? So right now, we get to run the economic world. We get to force all those petrodollars through the SWIFT banking system. We get to shut down what we call money laundering on our, our, our own terms. We're not going to have any of that leverage if a new digital currency arises that isn't managed by somebody in the United States. And because it's digital, it could arise very quickly, and it could arise everywhere else other than the United States, and then it's forced down our throats. There's nothing we can do at that point. We'll be talking about how that probably is already happening. You're listening to Cryptonomics. We'll be right back. of our conversation, Mao money, Mao problems. Now, just when you may have thought that everything was bonkers with Facebook launching a digital currency called Libra, only six weeks later, that announcement was completely eclipsed by another from the People's Bank of China. So on the 11th of August, they calmly informed the world that a digital yuan, which is a fully digital version of the Chinese currency, would soon be forthcoming. And oh, by the way, it would be accelerated into release because of Libra. And it noted that the intention was to have it completely replace all of the banknotes and coins circulating in China question, Mark, is this even possible? I mean, not just technically, but practically. Would every Chinese need to own a smartphone? Because not all Chinese own smartphones yet. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that it's, I mean, of course, everyone won't uh, use it. All There'll be a, a period where there's a transition, mm. of course. Um, but I do think China is incredibly serious about creating their own digital one. Mm. They're, they're not goofing around. Mm-hmm. So a um, couple, couple quotes here. Uh, one from uh, Chinese President Xi. Uh, I always don't know how to pronounce it. Xi. Xi. He has called for the country to accelerate its adoption of blockchain technologies. Um, and the new Chinese law says, and this is a quote from their announcement, Clear guidelines and regulations are needed to evaluate, evaluate commercial cryptography techniques used in the major fields related to the national interest or as the current quote-unquote loose system is not suitable for the industry anymore. Now, they're talking more about cryptography and you know sort of blockchain, more cryptography than blockchain uh, with respect to this law, but they're setting the stage for the national cryptocurrency. So they're very serious about it. They're not goofing around. They're coming for our heads. Rob. Is this now, if they get this up and running in China, even if it doesn't completely absorb all of the currency in China, or it takes some number of years, and you could easily see it taking a decade or more uh, for, for that to happen. But do we think that this is also then going to become a Chinese export? So would we see, say, Myanmar, Laos, or Cambodia, which are the three states that are under the immediate sphere of Chinese influence, and then also Hong Kong and Taiwan, would we expect to see a digital yuan showing up there soon as well? For sure. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen. If China's successful in introducing a digital currency that works, I see no reason why they wouldn't export that all over the world. The battle for the next billion internet users isn't going to be in North America, and Mm. it's not going to be in Western Europe. It's going to be in all these other places where people haven't had good connectivity. Mm -hmm. 
They're not less intelligent, they're just less connected. Yeah. They're therefore less affluent. They're going to migrate to digital platforms sooner or later. Maybe it's a smartphone, maybe it's some sort of AR goggles, but whatever that device of the future is, you can be sure of a few things. Well, number one, Chinese companies will be there. The Chinese are now evolving so fast in their digital technology and their digital businesses that I think most Americans, unless you travel there and pay close attention, yeah, you don't see it. You're unaware that they're actually leapfrogging ahead and they're very determined to do this. This is a point of national pride. Uh, so they're determined to dethrone the United States. And second thing that a lot of Americans don't realize is that um, the internet principally taught people in other countries how to think like an American. And if you like that, that's great. It trained people to think freely and voice themselves in the way that Americans do, in the characteristic way we do. Um, but if you're not fond of that, or if you're, let's say your government isn't supportive of that approach, then you might not like that. You might want to see a different approach. So maybe Internet 2.0, the next wave of Internet innovation, might be coming from China. Ten years ago, I told people, your next social network will be a Chinese social network. And everyone laughed and said, come on, Facebook is the be-all and end-all. Okay, TikTok. So now we're at a point Exactly, where TikTok is growing at a rapid clip. It's no surprise to me that, once again, Congress is bashing Chinese companies like TikTok, who just turned down an invitation to go in front of Congress and get wirebrushed, just like Facebook got wirebrushed last week. I'm not surprised. Why would anyone accept these invitations? Uh, so the United States government now is playing the role of defending our digital technology companies, and it's not a good look. This isn't limited to social media or digital currency. It's across the board. If this is the Chinese century, and there's broad consensus that that's the case, is does it begin with the Chinese redefining what money is and how money works. Is that how this power shift happens? Is there a sense of sort of inevitability around that? That's within the context of a much bigger initiative that people should pay closer attention to. It's a program called Made in China 2025. It was introduced by President Xi back in 2015. And the idea was that China, within the 10-year span, would become the world leader in a number of crucial technologies. Uh, those technologies include artificial intelligence, renewable energy, uh, automotion, uh, automotive, particularly robot vehicles, um, so-called smart factories, a number of different fields. Uh, this is Chinese, China's industrial policy. And before people start freaking out about that, there's a couple things to bear in mind. First of all, every communist government has had a five-year plan, so yes. a 10-year plan is not that big of a change for them to have. The second thing is that China learned this very clearly from Japan and Korea two countries that used industrial policy to great effect, two countries that used industrial policy to dethrone the United States and particularly our electronics companies and telecommunications companies. And automotive. So when you look at, when you look at uh, China's um, central bank digital currency, this, this notion of a, a government-issued stablecoin, I look at it in the context that China seeks to be a world leader, not the only world leader, but a world leader in all of the important technologies of the 21st century. I'm not certain they're gonna get there. There's a million ways to fail, and it's not always the case that industrial policy works. Mm -hmm. We've never seen any country been able to pull this off. But nevertheless, you can't underestimate the level of determ determination 
and uh, innovation coming from China. They are now at least one year ahead of us in 5G telecommunications, and it could be more than that. There are more than 100,000 base stations for 5G. And of course, the Chinese flavor of 5G runs across a lot more spectrum than the United States. So just as the United States is trying to carve out digital currency and sort of set itself apart and create an island or a fortress mentality here, we're doing the same thing with 5G. We're using different frequencies than the rest of the world. Because our frequencies, our most desirable frequencies for 5G are dominated by U.S. military, and they're not in the habit of giving those up. So uh, they're not likely to give those up in time, which means U.S. is going to fall behind. So if you start to look at a combination of technologies, artificial intelligence, digital currency, future telecommunications, and so forth, and you see that China is making real gains as they have this uh, government leadership and then private businesses are participating under that, under that rubric. Uh, I think the United States needs to wake up and take this very, very seriously. And here I think Zuckerberg is right to ring the alarm. So what you're describing, if we were talking about two companies, you would be talking, it's the classic innovator's dilemma, right? That you have an incumbent that is slow, that is comfortable, that's profitable, that doesn't see any need to change. In this scenario, that's the United States. Right, but that's that's what I'm saying. It's the geopolitical version of the innovator's dilemma. And then you have the disruptor coming along who has no established infrastructure to disrupt, who can just do new things because they are unencumbered. They can put 5G everywhere. They don't have to worry about the bands, you know, all of these things. And, and we can see this again, to bring it back to the local example, in digital currencies, that the U.S., even for the Federal Reserve to do its sort of interconnect program that will give people more or less instant payments, is something that we've now had in Australia for a few years, which is amazing and opens up a whole bunch of different kinds of new commerce. The FedNow program which is really only going to be for bank clearing checks, right? Isn't going to be up until 2023 or 2024. And that's them. That's the Fed moving at light speed. Right. So are we, I mean, and, but again, innovators dilemma, large, well-established cash cow businesses move slowly. I mean, is the U S in some sense condemned to this or is, because I mean, you're right. Suck is there offering them the new exciting shiny with all of the reasons that we should fear and distrust that. But nonetheless, it's the case. About six months ago, the official, you know, policy of the Chinese government was that uh, blockchain and Bitcoin are scams, right? Almost overnight, um, from the highest levels, uh, they have now shifted into warp nine going forward on blockchain. With, with this blockchain law, yes. with the thing that she has said in public with and the digital yuan. Not only that, not only that, but new courses on blockchain Overnight appeared at universities all across China. So is this now going on that list of made in China 2025? Is blockchain going on the list? Yeah, they're putting it into that program. And so now, once the government says do this, you saw it with AI just three years ago, right? With artificial intelligence, all of a sudden, all the papers started getting published in China. Research, research cities, you know, not just states in China, provinces in China, but cities were starting to give out large grants for AI research. Um, You're going to see something similar happen if this becomes official policy. People are going to fall in line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if you're talking about moving policy fast, it actually helps to have a dictatorship, yes. like an authoritarian society. Sure. I'm not a fan. So please don't misunderstand me and don't send hate mail. But you know, the 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 real question here is: Can the the Western formula, uh, which has been democratic um, republic rule, yeah, or open democracies of some sort, um, coupled with some form of free market or something close to free market or free enterprise? Can that move fast enough 
when you're up against a technocratic, autocratic dictatorship? It's a really interesting question. So, so one of the, it is, and, and I've been asking this a lot, and one of the things, because Mark and I have been talking about this sort of on the side channel, th- that I see here is that China is moving monolithically. Yeah. The U.S. is actually, as much as it likes to think of itself as a monolithic entity, is this sort of chaotic arrangement yeah. of different polities all doing all sorts of different things. And is that then, and, and some of that then encounters, you know, Zuckerberg is one of the, those chaotic entities doing this chaotic thing. So is, in fact, the way that, that the West counters this kind of moving monolithic threat is just by sort of letting a thousand different things happen, a thousand flowers blooming. But we're not doing that. That's, That's why Chairman we're Mao, by the way. <laughs> I know. I mean, I think our chaos is our strength when we allow it to flourish. Right, and when we allow all these uh, sort of warring, sort of competing factions to come up with the best answer out of all the competing answers, we're not allowing that to happen. We're shutting all that down with respect to cryptocurrency in the United States. So our strength has now vanished. And meanwhile, China's strength has gotten stronger. It's really true. Uh, I'm, I'm the farthest thing, farthest thing from a libertarian you can possibly identify, and yet here is a clear example of. Regulation not working. Regulation stifling innovation. So we have our Treasury Secretary threatening openly companies that defy regulation. All right, so we just saw a whole bunch of examples of big institutions going, we're not going to challenge the regulator, and they're dropping out of the innovation out of the innovation consortium. Far better, I think, would be for, for government to say, we're not sure if we like this flavor of innovation, so let's see 25 or 2,000 or 250,000 versions of this thing flourish. Let's make ourselves the Switzerland, if you will, of uh, digital currency. We're not doing that. Right. So that tells you that we've got a broken democracy here and that vested interests are leveraging legacy regulations to protect themselves from innovation. Which, again, innovator's dilemma, right? I mean, that's always part of the arsenal of the, of the incumbent. All right. You know, it, it's good that you mentioned libertarianism here because one thing we really do need to wonder, and it's become clearer and clearer now, is, is in some sense if all, all of this stuff that's coming out of China, this amazing wave of innovation is as amazing as we want to think it is. So it's been a little over 11 years since Satoshi's white paper hit the Internet. And for that period of time, the main narrative is that cryptocurrencies and blockchains have been seen as instruments of freedom. They embody crypto-anarchist principles of anonymity. What if, and I want to sort of state a point of view that I think is going to sound a little heretical, but is probably starting to become clearer. What if that point of view was actually always wrong? Because all of these technologies are based on ledgers. All ledgers are data logs. They track things. They can be used to track people. As you mentioned, Mark, from this this, uh, child pornography case, that happens all of the time. Is that the real goal for China's dive into blockchain? Because this is what I've been thinking, and I wasn't surprised to see similar sentiments in the New York Times in an article that was titled, China's proposed digital currency more about policing than progress. Let me just quote a little bit of it. One patent file, the article says, one patent the bank is exploring, this is the People's Bank of China, is a tracking system that would make the digital currency's movements traceable between transactions and people. That's, that's the end quote. So the article makes the point that a digital currency issued by China's central bank will reveal and log all 
of the financial activities by all Chinese and by anyone else using that currency. That is a level of detail. It's a level of surveillance that has never before been possible. It's never really even been dreamed of. So we're moving from surveillance capitalism to surveillance capitalism with Chinese characteristics. So does that mean that the libertarian dreams, the fantasies of cryptocurrencies opening the world has now transformed into the ultimate tool for authoritarians? Yes, I think there's absolutely that um, possibility. Um, You know, I think that, that, you know, China wants to get control of the keys. They want to see the flow of all digital currency. You probably, it would be harder to do it with Bitcoin. Um, it's much easier to pervert Bitcoin into your own sort of flavor of Bitcoin. and If you build in less the, the Chinese off. characteristics right. that allow it to be That's tracked. Right. Yeah. And, and, where, they're, and where, they're, where the Chinese are aiming uh, at right now with, the, with this law that they just passed is specifically at the cryptography. Mm. So um, this is, I'm going to quote now, Dovey Wen, who I follow on Twitter, brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, she speaks Chinese natively. She re, uh, is a reporter for Cointelegraph. We'll link to her Twitter account in the website. Yes. She says, the key takeaway from the Chinese law is that the developing of new cryptography, hashing algorithms, even the usage of the tech is now in the official legal realm. This means that you need to follow the CCP standard for all encrypted behaviors, right? So that that could include mining, block propagation. All that stuff is now property of the party. So that's a, that's a new development. Yeah, which means that presumably they would have all of the technique that they needed to be able to crack yes, something. And this is, exactly. you know, this is exactly why you have to regard suspiciously anyone's offer of cryptography, right? Because all cryptography is provisional until it's been tested by a lot of people in a lot of situations. And even then, they still get broken years later because no cryptography is perfect. All right. So... If we have this blockchain with Chinese characteristics, this money with Chinese characteristics, this digital currency, is there any hope of being able to have a digital currency that doesn't end up being a tool for surveillance? Not necessarily the digital yuan, but Libra or anything else. Or is, is that simply the bargain that you make with the digital currency? It's a giant open question. I'm skeptical that this sort of top-down approach is ultimately the right approach to finding the ultimate solution. I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's ever been the case. Top-down approaches are usually used in a military situation, you know, where the government commandeers private sector because they need, a, they need something done urgently. Um, and then after the military action is over, that takeover is decried and measures are passed and people are rebuked and we go back to uh, letting the private sector do what it does, which is innovate and use capital efficiently to develop new novel solutions. I think that's probably where the ultimate destiny of digital currency is going to emerge from. The problem we have right now is that the United States is in a historically strange spot because money dominates politics, and so you can buy politicians. It's the best investment for an incumbent company right now. Lobbying, by far, brings the biggest return on investment. So no surprise, you've got a lot of people in a do-nothing Congress that are prepared to do whatever it takes, whatever kind of grandstanding and theatrics are necessary to just slow things down so that the incumbents can figure it out. You saw something similar happen in healthcare, but it hasn't stopped healthcare. 
right? Digital healthcare is evolving. Digital healthcare is happening. It's happening around the margins. You saw something similar happen with payments, but that hasn't stopped Apple and everybody else from piling into digital payments. So my hunch is that innovation is going to continue and it'll find a way by hook or by crook, and we might need to sort out our government. I'm personally not going to stay awake at night worrying about China dominating digital currency. I think ultimately this is a kind of weird backhanded validation of the concept that a national government that seeks to be number one, that definitely is after some form of dominance in technology, is embracing this. That's a wake-up call. And maybe it's late. You know, Maybe the United States should be more on it. Maybe we should have better Congress people. I don't know. But here's what I do know. We will wake up from the stupor at some point. We're going to recover, and we're going to do what we do best, which is innovate. I totally believe in that because I believe in people like Mark Jeffrey. <laughs> Okay. So, so this is on me to innovate? Yeah, oh well, you're God. doing it. And you have been, right? But by the time we next do this, Mark, you better have a full solution worked <laughs> well, out. I'm, I'm going to bank on Mark it. Jeffrey more than I'm going to bank on some faceless bureaucrat in a communist system. Come on. So we always end the, our, our roundtables with the predictions. I want you to both give me your best predictions for Libra and Digital Yuan, say, over the next six months or so. Where do we think we're going to go? Please, Mark. So I, I think Libra will launch in some way. It won't be in the United States. It'll be somewhere overseas. It'll be a limited launch. They'll call it a test. But we'll see something. They can't just not do anything. I, I don't think it can go that long. However, I think more interestingly, I think that uh, this activity in China um, will finally make Donald Trump and Maxine Waters both wake up. Both Donald, Donald Trump has said, I hate Bitcoin, I hate, crypt, I hate cryptocurrency. Maxine Waters has basically said the same thing. So they're both kind of on the same page. I think this China thing will wake both of them up. I think we will see the announcement of a digital crypto dollar uh, sometime very soon. I don't think we're going to take, I don't think we're going to fall asleep on this one. I think at last China's action will wake us up. Do you think, well, I mean, we might the next see six an months. announcement, but do you think we'll, so, so we'll see an announcement, but not a release because I can't no, see it the won't Federal be released Reserve in the next six moving months. that fast. But we, we will absolutely start moving and we will get into motion. So we're late to the race, just like the space race, but I, I think we'll finally get in gear. Um, yeah, keeping in mind the number of vehicles that blew up on the pad. <laughs> we'll <laughs> have some the explosions. There's no the question about that. Race. Rob? I agree with Mark. I think uh, I think work on Libra is going to continue. It's worth pointing out to your listeners that the U.S. Congress cannot actually stop Facebook from development. U.S. regulators can penalize Facebook for releasing it in the United States, but they can't stop them from developing. And Zuck's made it very clear he's not going to stop. So I think that that's going to continue. It might launch someplace else first while they sort this out. My belief is that there is a backroom deal to be done. It might involve paying for some politicians' uh, election campaign of some sort. Um, or or it some might be involved making a public statement that they're not going to fact check political ads, which yeah, they've right, exactly, already done. Exactly right. Meanwhile, on the China side, uh, I'm very skeptical of any narrative that paints China as the villain in the scenario. I think that's politically very expedient for a lot of people who aren't very imaginative, and I think a lot of Americans love to fall into this uh, into this classic, you know, us versus them pairing. Whether it's you know us versus the Chinese or us versus the Russians or us versus some previous villains from the past. You have to be really cautious about that because whenever you have that simple black and white portrayal, somebody's getting paid on the side. Someone's making money on it. It's a, it's a classic hoax. So be cautious about that. And finally, about American innovation, here's what I'm going to do. In this era of fake news, I'm going to cite a very dubious quotation attributed to Winston Churchill, who it is said with no evidence that he once said... Um, you can always count on the United States to do the right thing after they've exhausted all other possibilities. Yes. 
Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Rob. That brings us to the close of series two of Cryptonomics. And when we started this series last year, who could have imagined that we'd be telling the tale of the world's largest social network and the world's most populous nation both issuing digital currencies. And that is not the only thing that's changing. And as money changes, the entire financial system transforms. We're seeing this transformation in banking. So look for a new series exploring what banking is becoming and what that's going to change about the way we save, invest, and spend our money. It's coming your way at the start of the year. Now, if you want to learn more about Zuckerberg's problems getting Libra running or anything about how the People's Republic of China has gone all in on blockchain or play with Mark Jeffrey's new Guardian Circle app, and I should tell you here that I'm an advisor to Guardian Circle, just as a disclaimer, or learn about Rob's fantastic book, Vaporized, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Big thanks to Mark Jeffrey and Rob Tursick for taking the time to come onto our show. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Matt Nikolic. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>